Happy Friday the 13th, witches, women, and other magical listeners. I'm Hannah, the bipolar bisexual host of this bi-weekly podcast of Witches and Women, a Her Story podcast. This is Season 2, Witches and Women in Medicine. Interestingly, women appear to be the first healers in archaeology and history, but as patriarchal narratives have become mainstream and sort of taken over, women healers were labeled as witches and were some of the first to be oppressed, tortured, killed, and used by men in power for their knowledge. Their stories are hard to uncover and most have been lost forever. But this season, we're uncovering what we can of our magical legacy and embracing our history of witchcraft, confidence, and strength. Be sure you and your coven are subscribed to the pod on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Stitcher, or Spotify, and connect with your sisters through the Of Witches and Women Instagram, Twitter, Reddit, or Facebook pages. This season of the Of Witches and Women podcast is sponsored by Lua Ray Clothing. Lua Ray Clothing is an online boutique stocked with high quality women's clothing that is flattering, comfortable, current, and inclusive. In fact, this women-owned and operated boutique has a blouse named in honor of our first witch of the season. The Millie Top is named in honor of an ancient Anglo-Saxon witch, Mildred. Check out her story on episode 23 and visit luarae.com, L-U-A-R-A-E.com today to shop their fall collection and use the promo code WITCHES15 at checkout for a 15% discount that is just for you, my witchlings, so make good use of it. Today, I'm so excited to share this interview with Sarah Cox with you. Sarah's a medical student studying in Texas at the Long School of Medicine. She's easily one of the smartest, most talented people I know, and she is going to be an amazing doctor and is already an amazing advocate. She does a great job of translating specialized information into a format we can all understand and learn from. So enjoy this interview. Anytime there's like a pandemic or any sort of economic collapse, that's the first thing to go. So I'm like, hmm. It's made me feel really good about my career choices. Yeah. (laughs) You're in high demand. (laughs) But but really makes me feel really bad about how much I think people will trust me in the future. That's the really (laughs) disappointing. I like every day I'm like, like, I'm going to school to learn all of this. Mm-hmm. So you don't have to because you can't, which is fine. Right. And then you're just you're just gonna ignore that. Mm-hmm. I'm like, I like I every day now I'm like I'm like no one's gonna trust me anything I say ever again. Like and and that's that's concerning. Like patient like compliance which, I mean, has its own issues about, like, whether or not that's actually a term we should use, and that's a good question. But patient compliance is already a struggle, mm-hmm. and that's with people trusting their health providers. Yeah. So, I'm, I'm scared. Why, why would they trust you when they have Dr. Google, Sarah? I don't know. <laughs> I don't know. 
not like you studied this and did actual research that, you know, was scientifically sound. The worst really is this whole hydroxychloroquine nonsense. Because, like, I I don't know how to explain to people that drugs are not cut and dry. Mm -hmm. And I don't know how to explain to people that they like can interact with like your body in like different ways and it's not just like oh I take this and it makes me better <laughs> and like the like the favorite study of like the people who are like oh see hydroxychloroquine works the people who are also taking steroids and steroids mm. work and right. so it's like and, and drugs can work together like in both hurting and hindering each other so like a really fun fact that I learned earlier this or like last year I guess that I feel like I should know is if you drink an excessive amount of grapefruit juice, that can make your oral contraceptive not work. Grapefruit juice. Grapefruit juice. Because huh. of like the way that they're processed by your body, they both are processed by your body in like the same enzyme in your liver. And so if you like are consuming a certain amount of like, it's really an excessive amount of grapefruit juice. Like if I like grapefruit and you eat a grapefruit, you're fine. But like, an excessive amount, yeah, like all the that time. enzyme can be busy dealing with that. And so, like, it can change, like, the rate at which, like, your oral contraceptive pill is broken down. And then that can change how, like, what's actually going on in your body, right? Because, like, there's more or less of it, like, in your body than there would be normally. Mm-hmm. And so lots of drugs do this. And lots of drugs interact with each other and these kind of things. And so, like... I'm sure, like, that's why, like, I'm sure you know, like, oh, because I'm taking this drug or these drugs for whatever reason, like, I, your provider won't prescribe you these ones or whatever. Anywho, Mm -hmm. these, like, there's all these things that, like, come into play with how drugs work and people are like, well, if you just give people hydroxychloroquine, then I'll cure their COVID. And I'm like, you, it's not that simple. You can't do that. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. it stresses me out. It stresses me out because I'm like, people are going to start buying this like black market from people who like take it for lupus mm-hmm. and then like use it to cure COVID and then they may die because like it causes at high doses really bad heart problems and mm-hmm. that's terrifying. Yeah. Man. It's so bad. I mean, even okay. like stupid drug interactions are dangerous. Like if you take Zoloft, you can't take Advil. Because right. it can cause internal bleeding. And like anyone can buy Advil and pretty much anybody can get a Zoloft prescription if they know what to say to their like general practitioner. Right. So I'm like, Ugh. or like Pepto-Bismol and something like Xanax or something. Well, even, even there's this herbal supplement that people take that's called like St. John's Wort. I don't know if you've ever heard of it. Mm-hmm. But it has, so people don't even think about it. And they don't even think about telling the provider that they're taking it because it's like an herbal supplement. Right. But it has a ton of drug-drug interactions. Yes. And so, like, I, I'm terrified. I'm terrified that people are taking it. I'm terrified that I won't know that some of my patients are taking it. Mm-hmm. Like, and then I'll prescribe those things and I'll kill them. Like, the, It's, like, such a common herbal remedy for like depression any any mental illness you look up they're like try st john's wort and then any good site will be like but not if you're taking any actual medications yep like yep yeah because like a lot of drugs come from plants and nature and stuff and 
they are still powerful and dangerous. Remind yes. me what year you are in school. Second. Second year. And so they call like an MS2, a medical student too. Um, you don't technically have one at this point. Okay. What do um, you want I want to go into pediatrics, leaning towards subspecialized pediatrics. So, Sarah, I know that um, for the most part in the U.S., a lot of graduate programs now, they have more and more women and minorities. Sometimes they even have more women than men. Um, how is that reflected in your program? Are there very many women and minorities? Like, what do you see in your classes? Yeah, um, that's a great question. Um, I think that's interesting to highlight, like, exactly what you said more on the broad scale. Um, it was really cool because the year that I was accepted into medical school and started medical school in 2019 um, was the first time ever that the majority of U.S. medical students were women. 2017 was the year that more women students were accepted than mm -hmm. male students. And so by the time 2019 rolled around, out of the four years of medical school, there were more women than men at 50.5% uh, of medical students. Um, my class at my school is slightly less than that, and it, women students are still less than 50%, but I'm hopeful that our school continue to um, continue the trajectory of the national um, statistics. In my class, there are 46.29% women and 53.71% men, so slightly less, but almost half, which is great, and is definitely appreciated and reflected in all the different groups that I work with. Um, in regards to um, other minorities, my class actually does, I think, a pretty good job of this. Um, white students only make up 44.8% of the students, with 20% being Hispanic, 22% being Asian, 5% being Black, 0.3% being Native American or Alaskan Native, and uh, the other 6% being two or more or unknown. Um, it definitely could be better, however, because being here in Texas, the community surrounding the school has a much larger Hispanic and Black population than mm -hmm. the school represents. And so I think that um, something that would be a great focus for the school would be trying to better align their demographics of the program with the demographics of the area in which they serve. Mm -hmm. It's especially important to note that only 5% of the students here are Black, and that is definitely an area that can be improved. Something that I know my school is currently working on is trying to increase the amount of scholarships specific for Black people, mm -hmm. um, because there are much more than 5% of, um, of Black people are accepted, and they're choosing not to go here. And so that's something that our school mm -hmm. has looked at and identified, and they want to help with retention. And so by offering scholarships to help reduce costs that can potentially attract the school more to those students of color. And so then we can not only train them so we have more students here, but then have more faculty and staff here that are of people of color, which can then create an even better environment, both for future students of color and for the um, patients that they serve. Yeah, I think, so I, recently spoke to a black midwife uh, named Nikki Helms, who will also have an interview on this podcast. I'm not sure if it'll be before or after this one. And she works in San Diego and she talks a lot about that sort of, you need to have, especially for black women, that reflection of like somebody you can identify with in the room 
because like it's scary for black women to have a baby in this country legitimately like our mortality rates are ridiculous so that's very wise of the school to be looking at that and hopefully improving in the future so with the student demographics which seem to be like doing pretty well and hopefully getting better what are your teacher demographics like this is an area that could definitely use improvement um so out of the 7745 faculty that we have for our medical school um 60 wow. percent of them are white um which definitely does not represent the demographic of the area or the demographic of the students as well um another 20 percent are asian only 15 percent are hispanic which is incredibly low for this area in the country and only 1.8 percent are black um with point one, no, 0.06% being Native American. Mm -hmm. So incredibly low for people of color in regards to faculty, especially for Black and Native American individuals. And again, like I said, low for Hispanics for the area that we're in for sure. 56% mm -hmm. um, of them are male and 43% of them are female with um, the majority of high level deans being male, but we do have two of our deans for our school that are female. So there definitely is some like female members in higher up leadership, but there could definitely be more. Mm -hmm. But I was pleased to see that at least 43% of our leadership are female. But yeah, definitely room for improvement in aggressive faculty. But part of the struggle with that is again retain like retaining them. Mm -hmm. So finding them, hiring them, retaining them, and training them. The more that we train of, of women and people of color, the more we'll be available and qualified for faculty positions. There are so many out there who are. The more that we continue to grow those students into like academic medicine teachers and providers, then the more that they will be able to draw from and then the more we'll be able to teach and the more we'll be able to treat. Patients. Yeah. Mm -hmm. You'll have so many more options. In the um, like anatomy and physiology classes and labs and settings that you've participated in so far, how much emphasis or even just in classroom discussion is placed on like the separate sexes and the differences in diagnoses, treatment, that kind of thing? Yeah, that's a great question. So for like our anatomy lab, um, while each group only had one cadaver, we were expected to like search out the cadaver of the opposite sex and learn the differences in them. So for mm -hmm. example, like I had a male cadaver, but the, the group next to us had a female cadaver. And so I, it was expected of me that I did my dissection on my body, learned those structures. And then I went over to the, to the um, group next to mine and learned the structures on that body as well. So we were definitely responsible for the anatomical features of both bodies. Um, in regards to learning the reproductive features of both sexes, um, those topics have been actually split apart into different units to give each of them the context that they deserve. So like, for example, Good. we learn about um, female reproductive systems uh, in conjunction with like, the endocrine system because those are really involved, uh, which I think is great. And then we learn about mm. the male reproductive system in conjunction with the urinary and renal system because those are really involved. And I think that that's great and a good way to do it. And it places emphasis on both in, I think, the, the way that they, they ought to be. However, Separate from reproductive topics, I feel like the differences between um, male and female bodies aren't really prominently addressed. Um, some instances that I have specifically noticed that there's definitely room for improvement is in like our cardiac unit, we didn't discuss the difference in heart attack symptoms. 
between mm. the two groups, mm-hmm. which is huge. There's data to show that um, emergency rooms are much more likely to miss women who are experiencing a heart attack because the symptoms are different than what we consider the typical uh, symptoms, aka the male symptoms for heart attack. That's really important, and I feel like we did not address that. Another thing is that when we did our CPR course, at the beginning of our medical school experience, all of the mannequins are definitely male mannequins. And there was never even a conversation of what to do when the individual that needs CPR has, has breast or is wearing a bra or any of that. So like they literally went into specific detail about how to shave chest hair for someone to put like <laughs> the like sticker on. But we did not even have a conversation about how to remove a bra, what to do if there are large breasts and we need to get like you know, in the area. Um, Mm -hmm. And I feel like that was definitely a conversation that needs to happen because, you know, first responders or even just like, you know, the lay person being scared of like, oh, I don't want to, you know, I don't want to harass this person. I don't want to, you know, be all in their business. But like when, when someone's dying, like that's, you need to be like, that's the time. And so Mm -hmm. having the skills to be able to do that and be comfortable with doing that is really critical. And I feel like that was something that we did not address, unfortunately. And then the last thing that I feel like is definitely a weak spot for our program in this area is that um, right now when we, because um, I'm a second year student, and we practice the physical exams with what are called standardized patients. So these are, these are individuals who don't actually have any symptoms. They are paid by the school um, to be actors for us mm-hmm. um, to kind of, you know, so that we can we can learn how to take blood pressure. We can learn all these things on someone who, first of all, knows what we should be doing. And second of all, like, you know, is is not a real patient in critical need of care. Mm-hmm. And so, but something that I notice is that when we when we are asked to do exams on uh, that require um, access to a lot of like the the chest area, whether that be like a pulmonary exam or a cardiac exam, a lot of the time for our, our actual tests they use the male standardized patients for those areas, which mm-hmm. I think does a disservice because I think that when we are tested on how well our, like our bedside manner is, how well our consideration is in addition to like being able to do these exams in a timely and professional fashion, we need to be really good at doing them on women and really good about like asking, you know, Oh, like here, can you pull your shirt up to here? Or can I drape you like this? Or how can I make you comfortable? I think those conversations are really important to learn. And because we're not being tested on them, I think that that does a disservice. And a likewise fashion, we're definitely never tested on whether or not we use proper pronouns or ask about that. And I think that that's an area that our school could grow and develop in its mm-hmm. way too. So those are kind of some, some things that I hope will improve in the future um, yeah. in this program. Follow up to the pronouns question. Um, have you talked about in your classes like transsexual people and like the differences in care that may be needed there because they obviously have a biological sex and you know gender that are different and of course their mental health is important as well as their physical health in addressing those two separate factors of their identity um a little bit I think that that there, I feel like I'm not the best source for this because I haven't, um, our next module is, is the female reprogram endocrine system. And I feel like we'll cover it more than I hope well, at least we do address mm-hmm. this exact topic then. So I don't want to say like they don't just because I haven't yet experienced it. 
We'll see. Um, we'll see. Mm-hmm. But something that I do think is relevant is that there are optional discussions that are outside of like required class time that are about these topics. So like I've attended attended one or multiple actually that go into things like how because because when you start giving hormones to someone, their mm-hmm. biological sex is different from what they were born with anyway. So because like, you know, someone let's say was born with a uterus is being given testosterone, their biological sex no longer functions like a female body. It doesn't. Mm-hmm. But it doesn't function like a like a standardized male body either. It's its own thing and all those things may be considered in of itself in a really critical way. So it's definitely not as simple as being like, oh well their biological sex is female. They identify as male. It's mm-hmm. their biological sex is person with uterus being given with testosterone or whatever that looks like. Mm-hmm. And so it's definitely not cut and dry, but those things so far in my education have been optional um, and not tested, which I think it would be really great if we made them required and testable yeah. um, so that, so that no one, you know, came through this program and, and missed that information because it's so important. Um, but yes, hopefully they'll be covered more in depth in my next unit and I will follow up with that. Much more. Cool. Cool. That sounds like um, a very intricate type of discussion and learning process that needs to be had uh, because obviously your goal is not to make people more sick. Have you discussed in your classes or like in lectures and things how the different illnesses, like you mentioned, heart attack symptoms are different in men and women. I have heard also that depending on like skin color, different diseases are more prevalent or they just manifest differently, like depending on your race and things like that. Have you discussed how different illnesses like physically manifest? So no, unfortunately. Um, my school is actually not made like, up. <laughs> no, you're totally right. Okay. That's definitely true. Different, different diseases manifest incredibly differently on different skin color. And unfortunately, the the textbook pictures, the pictures we use, the way we think about those diseases often is on white skin. Mm-hmm. Um, this is a topic that has really concerned a lot of my peers and medical students all around the country. Um, a petition was signed amongst my classmates this past spring about this exact topic and brought to the attention of the deans of the school. And then last That's week, awesome. the deans, yeah, they held a town hall meeting last week to actually like acknowledge this petition. And then they promised that this, that changes to make the curriculum racially inclusive would be made in the next year. And one of the ones that they specifically said would be changed in the next year is including different skin colors in the curriculum, mm-hmm. um, which is great. It's really unfortunate it hasn't happened yet, but I'm glad that that's being recognized and that the change is going to be made. They assured us it will be and gave us ways that we can like follow up with that, mm-hmm. um, which is great. Um, but in the meantime, I think it's, important to know that there are resources out there that do exist that address this topic. So while it should be in the mainstream discussion, hands down, there are places to turn. So there's like things as as simple as like little Instagram pages. There's one that's called Brown Skin Matters that has pictures of different diseases on, on, on brown skin. Mm -hmm. Um, And then there are more professional resources for any other medical students or medical professionals out there listening um, that include like the Dermatology Atlas for Skin of Color, Atlas of Black Skin, Ethnic Dermatology Principles and Practice, uh, Taylor and Kelly, Kelly's Dermatology for Skin of Color, and an online resource called Virtual DX, um, which is available to 
most, I think, students and health professionals as well. Mm-hmm. So there are options out there. There's no excuse to not include these things in, in presentations, curriculums, PowerPoints, and in personal study. If someone does have a brown patient or a black patient, you know, skin color different than theirs, there are resources to know what things should look like, even though it hasn't necessarily been taught in the mainstream curriculum. So mm-hmm. there's not really an excuse to, you know, get it wrong. Right. <laughs> but, um, I'm really grateful that these changes are going to be made going forward. Thank you for the resources. I like, I've read articles about, you know, black people and people with darker skin tones, like they're often not taken as seriously by medical professionals. And so it, they are like their illnesses are caught at later stages, which means it's harder to recover from. So it's really important that we have like the doctors study those resources that we have them available etc <laughs> definitely true definitely true i think that um it's kind of been a perspective of like oh well it's easier to identify on white skin so that's what we're going to look for that's what we're going to think about but frankly in my opinion in my opinion yeah i think that's lazy medicine well and it's uh disingenuous to what you will actually face when you yeah. become a doctor I mean, I know you should practice like on the standard, like obviously you want to practice like a standard birth or like standard resuscitation, things like that. But that like if you practice only standard births and then you go in and you immediately have to do an emergency C-section, like you won't know what to look for unless you've done that and studied that. So. Well, and the whole point, I think, of a lot of things that we're thinking about and discussing here is is changing the standard from a white male patient to a human patient. Mm-hmm. The, the, there is no standard human being in regards to a specific race or ethnicity or gender. The standard yeah. is human. Mm-hmm. And we have to make room for that entire, like, what that means. Yeah, every, like, there's so many different directions that can go. And all of those patients are equally important and you're going to see them just as often. (laughs) So you have to be prepared. So what has surprised you the most about medical school so far? It was really interesting for me to realize like how much I needed to see female role models and have female peers. Um, Mm -hmm. When I was an undergrad, I was definitely a minority as a female um, pre-med student. And that was really hard coming here and being able to experience a you know, almost equal, like, female-to-male ratio was so important to me, and to be able to see female physicians was so important to me, and to be able to see female physicians married to other physicians with children, which Mm -hmm. is my future life trajectory, was so important to me, because it was so cool to see, oh my goodness, like, I can do this, I'm not alone, like, my life plan isn't as crazy as I thought it was going to be. People are doing it. People are doing it, yeah, and in that, I, I realized, like, I better recognize now how, to the best of my ability, how important it is for minorities to have examples and peers that are like them. You know, now in the U.S., by and large, like me being a white female medical student is not a crazy thing anymore. I'm not necessarily Mm -hmm. considered a minority anymore in medicine. And that's so exciting. But I felt like one in my undergraduate university when I was, you know, one of four female students in a 200-person OCHEM class. Mm-hmm. And it was hard. And so I feel like, you know, my very mild experiences in regards to going from feeling like a minority to going to, f- to feeling like 
you know, normal or not a minority anymore was really eye opening to how much that support is helpful, how much I feel empowered by it. And then take, like taking that and wanting to provide those same feelings to someone else. Mm-hmm. Um, so that was really cool. And that definitely, yeah, surprised me. That's good. That's a good surprise. And I feel like that would be like a big mentality sort of shift from, you know, everything is against me to I can do this. People are doing this. So that's awesome. It was huge. I really feel like um, it took off a lot of the toll of like every day, like, oh, I have to fight to do this. And now I just get Mm -hmm. to do it. And like my actual work is the same. But the amount of, I think, external stressors I felt Mm-hmm. Maybe, maybe actually they're internal stressors, honestly, of, of doubting myself or, or being nervous for the future. I feel like some of those have decreased. If you could go back and like tell yourself something in preparation for med school, what would you tell yourself? Um, I would say that boundaries of school are healthy and good. And I know that like, <laughs> maybe that's a weird thing to say. Um, I think that I can only talk from my experiences, but I think that in the in the pre-med and both the medical education culture, there's kind of the perspective that like med school is life. Med school is everything. School is everything. School is the most important. And mm-hmm. I just don't believe that. I don't. I refuse to accept the idea that school is my number one priority because yeah. I think that that's not healthy. Physician burnout is real. Mm-hmm. Um, physician suicide rates are absurd. And I think that like the best thing that I can do to protect myself from physician burnout and potential physician suicide is to make sure that like taking care of myself is my number one priority, not school. And I think that that starts early. I think that starts, you know, with being a pre-med student in college or even before, Mm -hmm. you know, what am I willing, how much of school do I allow to control me versus how much of, am I in control of my tasks to do? So I, for me personally, like something that I think has been really huge, really beneficial is like, you know, having explicit time where I don't study, even if I'm not done with everything, because I can, there's always more I can do, but saying, no, this is my time. Mm-hmm. School does not get to infringe upon that, you know, puts me in a position where I feel like I'm in control of my life. Mm-hmm. And that's been really huge for, for me personally. And I wish that, you know, I, I definitely didn't start out that way, and it's been a big learning curve for me to kind of um, come to that perspective and understanding after realizing it's what I needed to even be able to continue in this, like, career journey, and I wish that I had had this perspective earlier on, so that's something that I would change if I could. <laughs> I think that's incredibly important. So far, I've done, like, a handful of interviews, and I think all of them have mentioned physician burnout in some context. So like your, um, like your mentality is so important to that and like taking care of yourself. Well said. So what are you most worried about as you look towards like your residency and becoming a doctor? Um, I'm definitely worried about balancing and advocating for myself as a, as a physician, a wife as a physician, and a mother. While more women are now coming into the field of medicine, um, I still think there's a lot of pressure to put your career first. Mm-hmm. And I personally want my family life and my well-being to be as respected 
just as much as my professional life. Like I don't want to feel pressure to give everything to my career because like for me, that's not realistic or reasonable. Like really it's not for anyone. Mm-hmm. And I am scared of having to feel that pressure and to fight against it and ask for exceptions and ask for time off. I know, for example, at the hospital where I, that's connected with my medical school, that the maternity leave that they provide is the absolute bare minimum of two weeks. And that is ridiculous. <laughs> it's ridiculous. Wow. I, like, I don't even know how to clarify, like, how absurd that is. And it's terrifying for me if, like, I wanted to have a kid in medical school, I don't even get my maternity leave because I'm a student. Mm-hmm. But even while I'm a student, I would, my third and fourth years, I'm working in the hospital, you know, for hours. Mm-hmm. And there's, there's no, there's zero maternity leave. There's no exception. There's no time to be able to, you know, make that a thing. And I think that that's really hard. And I think that that's wrong. Mm-hmm. And so I, I worry about having to advocate for, for things like that, having to advocate for equal pay because female physicians are still on average paid less than their male physician counterparts. Mm-hmm. I worry about times when, when perhaps I'm on call and perhaps my spouse is on call and we have to find emergency childcare for our families. You know, I, I, I owe a lot to my patients. I do. And I owe a lot to the career of medicine, but I don't want to owe my life to medicine. Mm-hmm. And I, I guess I'm just scared of that pressure. So yeah, hopefully that, hopefully things will change before I get to those positions, but I'm not reasonable fear. Super optimistic. (laughs) I kind of hope that obviously this is not going to help in the medical profession, but in other professions, I think that the pandemic has sort of opened our eyes to the fact that childcare is not like, you can't always rely on just, Oh, I drop my kid off and I go to work. That's not always functional or possible. And we've seen a lot more of that, but like that's only one aspect of so much. And I'm sure some people will be quick to forget when it goes back to normal. Yeah, I agree. Hopefully not everyone. All right. So after that bleak question, what are you most excited about for the future? I think this actually connects to the question that came before this one pretty well. I, I think that as we, what we've talked about in this whole interview, as these topics of racial and gender equality continue to be advocated for and more and more people realize how essential they are, I believe that the field of medicine will continue to be better for both healthcare workers and the patients that mm-hmm. it serves. So I feel like the more female physicians that we have, the more that these, you know, things of equal pay and maternity leave and, and um, childcare will become more recognized and valued. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that as we have more um, persons of color as physicians, then they'll be able to be more students of color, feel comfortable and feel valued and empowered. And that will be Absolutely. able to be reflected in better patient care for both women and persons of color. And so there's definitely been a ton of research research out there that, that demonstrates that um, the more similarities there are between the physicians and the patients, the better the patient's outcome. Mm-hmm. And so the more that we can diversify and include um, all different, you know, ethnic groups, races, 
backgrounds, cultures, religions, and genders in our healthcare setting, the better our patient outcomes will be. And I am hopeful that that will increase because we've seen that happen already. And I, I am confident that the trajectory will continue. Mm-hmm. And I think it's cool, but also simultaneously hard to be a part of that change. I want it to happen already. I want it to be done. I want to come in at the end and be like, oh, we have, you know, maternal mortality is the same for white women and black women, hopefully is zero. And, you know, have, have all of the issues of women working in healthcare be figured out. And I, I want all these things. Mm-hmm. But I think it's also cool to have the opportunity to, to be a part of the change because like, while I am scared of having to advocate for myself in the future, I'm not just advocating for me in the future. I'm advocating for all the women who come after me in the future. Mm-hmm. And, and I think that that's cool, but scary, but cool. So. Well, can I just say, I've known you for a long time. If there is anybody I know who is going to be like a fighter and who also handles that stress really well, like you process stress and like difficult situations in a very productive way, you're gonna be great at it. Hey Witchlings, I wanna take a quick moment to remind you to visit my website of witchesandwomen.com. On ofwitchesandwomen.com, you can explore the shop and check out the merch. Lots of the merch is limited edition, so, Get your Witches in Medicine merch now! This season, in light of our theme and the global pandemic we are all experiencing together, proceeds from every purchase of the Witches Made Medicine limited edition t-shirt and stickers will be donated to a nonprofit that we will choose together later on in the season. So make sure you buy one and make sure we're connected on social media so you can help choose which organization we support. Once you have your swag, be sure to check out the Grimoire Gallery, our internet gallery curated with art by today's working artists and featuring art about witches and women in medicine. If you see something you like in the Grimoire Gallery, you can link to the artist portfolio site to see, share, or purchase more of their work. Of course, once you've scoped out the new stuff in the shop and the Grimoire Gallery, you can view show notes and listen to episodes in the Lamia Library. Finally, once you're on ofwitchesandwomen.com, please subscribe to my newsletter, The Oracle, at the bottom of any page of the website. Just scroll on down and add your name and email address. The Oracle will start up again soon and will continue to tell the shorter, more obscure stories that we won't always get to on the podcast. Plus, it will share the biographies of our Grimoire Gallery artists and have other exclusive content. This week was Dorothea Erxelben's 305th birthday. Who is Dorothea Erxelben? Just the first woman to be granted a medical license and degree ever. Dr. Erxelben's father was a doctor, and she studied him, his books, and his patients from an early age. As she grew up, Dorothea was inspired by Dr. Laura Bassey, the first woman to be granted a PhD in a scientific field, and a university professor in Italy, which was unheard of at the time. Dorothea began her fight to become a doctor in Germany, 
and her fight to her right to a medical degree. She became the first of many women's fights for the right to formal medical education and licensure. Dorothea received a dispensation or exemption from the law banning women from going to medical school by Frederick the Great, King of Prussia. So Dorothea went to medical school. She earned her medical degree from the Martin Luther University of Hallie Wittenberg and was the first woman in Germany to do so. Even as a qualified doctor, when Dorothea began practicing, it was illegal for her to practice medicine. Doctors were considered a public office in Prussia and only men were allowed to be registered for public office. Tricky. But Dorothea practiced anyways, primarily administering to the very poor in her area who couldn't afford doctors. At first, she was simply dismissed and ridiculed by other doctors and men in the area. But as she became more established, her success and her confidence became more of a threat to the suppressive male-dominant culture. Three doctors accused her of health fraud, so Dorothea went to court. The doctors insisted she take the medical exams that they had to take to register as public officials in order to prove that she was qualified, as they were sure she would fail them. Plus, even if she didn't, they knew she could not legally take them anyways. It was a trap, plain and simple. However, the university rector ruled that practicing medicine was not the same as holding a public office. So Dorothea Erxelben took the medical exams, passed easily, and became the first recorded woman to earn a medical degree and a license to practice medicine in June of 1754. Dr. Erxelben continued to practice medicine. She also had a son and became a woman's education advocate. Dorothea wrote a tract or a pamphlet advocating for women to have more rights and to fight for their right to education. In her writing, she challenged the theological and philosophical position that women were designed to be subordinate or submissive, and she implored women themselves to prioritize education. So, happy 305th birthday, doctor! Thank you for fighting for your medical credentials and in the process obtaining all women's first medical degree. Today's spell is actually a health potion. I've been pretty sick recently and been taking lots of elderberry and zinc supplements to speed up my recovery process when I came across an idea for an immunity boosting potion, which I've tweaked and want to share with you. So to make it, what you need to do is take one medium-sized ginger root, chop it up, two cups of organic elderberries, fresh or dry, both are fine, get what you can get, one cup of water. Blend them together till smooth, then place in a saucepan and boil for three minutes while stirring clockwise to promote good health. Then cool. Cooling is really important because once it's cool, you'll add half a cup of raw honey. And if you boil honey, you remove a lot of the health benefits. As you're adding the honey, if you want to add half a cup of vodka or more, the alcohol helps to preserve the mixture longer and it makes it fun, but it's not necessary for health magic. Mix it all together well and store the potion in a glass bottle in your fridge. Take like about a shot 
worth every morning to promote good health or at night or whenever you're done driving and working if you've decided to add alcohol. If this is something you're going to share with children, obviously omit the alcohol. And if you're serving it to children under two, replace the honey with pure maple syrup, which doesn't have quite as many health benefits, but it's still good for you and honey of any kind should not be given to infants and young toddlers as they are susceptible to toxins in the honey that are very, very dangerous to babies. But other than that, enjoy delicious, nutritious, and maybe a little magical. That's a wrap on today's episode. Thank you so much for listening. Be sure you and your coven are subscribed to Of Witches and Women on Apple, Google, Stitcher, or Spotify, and please write me a magical review on your podcast app of choice so others can find and enjoy the show as well. Connect to me and the pod on social media, of course, and look up ofwitchesandwomen.com for even more great content and to subscribe to The Oracle. As always, stay fierce, witches, and I'll catch you next time. Of Witches and Women is brought to you by SHH Media, LLC. 